0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Oncology Data Advisor. My name is Rahul Banerjee. I'm a assistant professor of medicine at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington. And today it's my pleasure to speak with Dr. Shanali Midha to get some updates from the 2023 International Myeloma Society meeting that took place a couple of weeks ago at the end of September in Athens, Greece. Dr. Minda Shanali is a myeloma expert at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. She's also an instructor in in medicine at Harvard Medical School and was also one of the oral presenters at this conference, the IMS meeting at the end of September in Athens. Dr. Minda Shanali, pleasure to have you joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Banerjee. It's my pleasure to be here today.
0: Wonderful. So, as I alluded to, you were one of the oral presenters, and I think what you presented was kind of uh, basically, you know, real-world data with teclistamab, something I would love to spend some time on. So maybe we can start there. Um, so teclistamab was approved in the U.S. just about a year ago, in October 2022. Can you tell us a bit more about this uh, this drug and the Majestic One trial that led to its approval?
1: Absolutely. So teclistamab is a bcma 83 3 bispecific T-cell engager. Um, that is approved in the relapse refractory setting after four lines of prior therapy in multiple myeloma. Um, it was approved, as you mentioned, back in October, 2022, um, based on the Majestic One study, which was a phase one, phase two study of Teclistomab in uh, patients that have received three or more prior lines of therapy uh, with relapse, relapse refractory disease. Um, In the Majestic study, patients um, did not have any CNS disease and were not considered eligible if they'd had significant uh, kidney dysfunction with a creatinine clearance below 40. Um, It did allow patients with a performance status of one or better, so relatively healthy patients overall. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll explain why I'm harping on that back to the moment. I, 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 can, I,
0: I know um, why, and the audience might guess why, but yeah. keep going. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah. Um, so that in, in their phase two portion, um, and overall, they had included um, 165 patients with an overall response rate of 63%, um, which is very exciting for, I think, a single agent therapy in this setting and patients that are so heavily pretreated that have received um, a median of five prior lines of therapy.
0: Great. So as you alluded to, you're kind of setting the stage here. So you presented your institution's, you know, real-world experience. Uh, can you describe what the results were, you know, how the patients were, any surprises or lessons learned compared to the published results from Majestic 1?
1: Absolutely. So we presented our data on a single institution um, retrospective analysis of patients treated with teclisimab in the commercial setting. So those that had, again, received four or more prior lines of therapy. Um, In regards to the demographics, um, our age-wise, our populations were very similar. Our median age was 69 as compared to 64 with Majestic. Um, Obviously we did have more patients with a poor performance status at the time that they started therapy. Um, So about uh, almost a third, about 30% of our patients um, had an ECOG status of two or greater. Um, we had more patients that had high uh, risk disease, either defined by a stage uh, two or three revised ISS stage um, or by high risk side genetics. We had um, over a quarter of patients with a 17P deletion. Um, we had up to 40% of patients that had a 1Q gain or amplification um, and uh, overall, you um, 59, or 49% with high-risk cytogenetics. Um, we had uh, 42% of patients that had extramedullary disease, so another high-risk feature right. in myeloma, um, and seven patients or about uh, 12.5% that had CNS disease. Um, of the patients we treated, 20 had had prior BCMA therapy, um, 13 of which had received prior belantumab mafidotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate, mm-hmm and 13 that had received prior BCMA-directed CAR T therapy. Um, So as you can tell here, there were some patients that had received more than one BCMA-directed therapy in the past. Um, So it definitely does go into um, some of the results that we see as well. Um, Of our patient population, which was 56 patients treated total between the time of FDA approval And um, our uh, data cut off at August 15th, we had treated 56 patients, 80% of those patients or 45 patients would not have been eligible for Majestic-1, either based on renal dysfunction, presence of CNS disease, or cytopenias at the time of treatment. So in regards to um, some of the toxicities that we're seeing um, and the safety signals, Uh, We actually saw very comparable rates. Uh, We had 52% of patients that had experienced any cytokine release syndrome, um, which was uh, not too far off. Uh, That was seen in 72% in the Majestic One study. We had very few grade three or greater events, um, only accounting for um, a little under 2% of uh, all cases. Um, And actually our median onset of CRS was later than what was seen in Majestic 1. They had cited a median onset of two days. Um, We had a median onset of five days um, and a duration of CRS that was about two days, again, similar to Majestic 1. We had very few neurotoxicity events. We actually had only um, one documented event. Um, So about 2%, no grade three or greater neurotoxicity events um, and 14 uh, cases of tocilizumab abuse, so about a quarter um, in regards to percentage. Um, so also something interesting, especially given the number of patients with CNS disease.
0: Before you get to efficacy, I was going to ask, was that one case is someone who had CNS disease or it uh, didn't?
1: So that one case was a patient who had received radiation for um, suspected CNS mm-hmm. disease. Um, and um, our our thinking at the time is whether there could have been an abscopal effect it was actually a very ter- transient neurotox event it was wrist drop that only lasted for a couple hours um they actually did not receive any dex by the time it had um improved <laughs> um so their symptoms of it actually had improved prior they had happened to receive radiation they had ongoing radiation um and during the time of the step up and so we were wondering if there could have been an abscopal effect that we were seeing there
0: which is fascinating. And just for the audience, the scopal effect would be that the radiation sensitizes other cells in the area or other basically like immune cells to kind of get in gear.
1: Exactly.
0: Wonderful. Okay. sorry, I interrupted you before the most exciting part. So now we <laughs> okay. see in this much sicker, much more real world, literally real world population.
1: Exactly. So what was exciting was despite uh, treating a very sick population, um, in a heavily pretreated population, we saw a response rate of uh, just under 54%. Um, obviously, this was better in patients that had not received prior BCMA directed therapy, it was around 58.3%. Um, those that had received prior BCMA therapy, the response rate was at 45%. Um, I think what was also really encouraging here was that Um, we saw a response rate of 37.5% in patients with extramedullary disease. Um, But as expected, when you look at the breakdown of those patients that had received prior BCMA versus those that had not, um, the patients that had received prior prior BCMA-directed CAR had a lower response rate, about 30.8%, as opposed to those that had received antibody drug conjugate. Um, So definitely um, somewhat sobering to see, um, you know, a slightly decreased rate in patients that have received prior BCMA directed therapy, but still a very good option, even in patients that are heavily pretreated um, and with uh, more comorbidities or uh, disease status, uh, greater disease burden at the time of treatment.
0: Agreed. If I may, I'll delve into you know. I think what I found striking about it is that yeah, for us, our patients with CNS involvement often do very poorly. We talk about pomalidomide, we talk about selinexor, drugs that maybe cross the blood brain barrier, or chemo, and that's it. I know it's small n, but still, you know, seven more, eight more. However, patients it was eight more than however I've personally treated with the clistimab in this setting. <laughs> Did some of those patients do okay, or even had CNS clearance or resolution of you know EMD in the in the in the calvarium?
1: Yeah, so we actually um, did not include that as part of this uh, uh, cohort here, but we have looked at our patients we've treated that have had documented CNS involvement, um, either radiographically or by CSF or, you know, leptomeningeal disease radiographically. Um, And out of the seven that were treated, five had a documented response, so a PR or better, which was very encouraging. Um, Two of those patients had received radiation for their CNS disease as well. Um, So, you know, I think there this is a therapy that does provide those patients benefit.
0: And this is very helpful. And I did not know that. So thank you for sharing that on the fly. And I think, yeah, obviously, small and more studies are needed. But I think showing that for those patients, obviously, many patients benefit from the clitinine, as you alluded to, but those patients in particular, everything scares us about them. We're so worried about neurotoxicity. It sounds like maybe you know, the rates are low of ICANNs and the, those patients and others, and some of them do respond. Um, wonderful.
1: Absolutely. But I think one thing which um, we saw as well as has been very well documented with uh, BCMA directed by specifics is the infection risk, right? Yeah. So um, out of our 56 patients, we had a documented 32 infections in 26 patients um, of which almost half, forty-eight percent of those were grade three or grade four infections. Um, we did not have any teiclysimad related infectious deaths. Um, however, uh, we did see a large proportion of those infections were respiratory. Um, the majority being upper respiratory infections, um, accompanying that uh, compromised or comprised of thirty-seven percent of the infections seen. Um, and then pneumonia comprising another um, close to 20% um, of the respiratory infections um, under half, about 46% were COVID cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did see again, um, a decent amount of skin, soft tissue, gastrointestinal and uh, GU infections. Um, so definitely something that we still have to keep an eye out for and uh learn a little bit better about how best to manage or mitigate.
0: That's very helpful to hear. Yeah, because I think a lot of us often, you know, assume that maybe some of the reason that the infectious deaths were so bad with the BCMA trials that they're running in the early days of COVID. Here, you see these are all patients treated commercially, all so in the last year. And so, you know, you could argue that COVID, we've had vaccines now, you know, the, the the virus has mutated, but it still sounds like a serious threat. You know, maybe not life-threatening, not grade five, thankfully, but right. patients still are getting ill.
1: Absolutely. So I think it's something we still have to um, learn best how to manage and, um, and decrease a risk for whether it's, you know, alternative dosing, um, looking at other ways of scheduling dosing or or prophylaxis.
0: That's exactly right. Exactly right. Hopefully, by this time next year, we'll have more exciting, uh, or maybe more exciting COVID treatments so we can use something like a shield for prophylaxis. Um, Great. So then, switching gears, and you know, now now we can talk about some of the other interesting uh, abstracts that IMS and I, you and I had discussed briefly beforehand. So you know, you focus now on tocilizumab in the real refractory setting, heavily pretreated patients. You did allude to you know a lot of these patients being higher risk and and more higher risk patients in your cohort than uh, than in Majestic One. So let's focus on high risk and pivot now to frontline setting. Um, The GMMG concept study was also presented looking at ISA-KRD, that's Isatuximab, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dex, and high-risk myeloma. Any thoughts about that, either that trial or about anything from IMS that changes how you approach or how you treat high-risk myeloma diagnosis?
1: I mean, I think it was definitely a very interesting trial, right? Looking at specifically a high-risk population, Taking into account within that high risk population, I think it's one of the few studies that's taken into account um, a 1Q amplification. They did use the second iteration of the revised ISS staging that does take, that factors that in, um, which I think is not a group that we have very well studied, although comprises a large proportion of myeloma patients. Um, from that perspective, it was very encouraging to see incredibly high rates of MRD negativity with isotuximab, carfilzomib, uh, REV, and DEX treatment up front. Um, you know, seeing MRD negativity rates for for both transplant ineligible and transplant eligible that are above um, you know, 54, 50 and 67% is um, is highly encouraging. Agreed. And I think you know, as we learn more about the role of MRD negativity, um, it may not be the be all end all, but knowing that you can achieve a deeper level of response upfront, I think is um, something that gives us pause and especially in a high risk population.
0: Agreed. Agreed. And that's helpful to hear. I mean, I know in the U.S., at least for our listeners, it's not yet the approved for frontline therapy, but agreed. I think it's showing that, you know, maybe this type of approach uh, works. And Dr. Ramita alluded to the transplant ineligible patients were also included in the study as well. So it's not just like a one pathway, kind of like a way of life using quadruplets and then rolling with it. So um, great. Uh, The other study that comes to mind for me is Canova, which actually uh, will be, for people listening to this, we're going to be doing another podcast with Dr. Yi specifically Andrew Yi from a different institution in Boston, specifically about T1114, I'm sorry, but I'm sure that's probably the one that turned the most heads at IMS. Can you catch us up to speed on the Canova trial and maybe how it informs or doesn't inform your practice since returning from Greece?
1: Absolutely. So the Canova trial was a phase three study looking at venetoclax, dexamethasone, um, as opposed to pomalidomide and dexamethasone in patients that have uh, relapsed refractory myeloma have received greater than two lines of therapy. Um, And so they looked at patients uh, that did have a translocation 1114 Um, that is suggestive of BCL2 expression for which venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor um, and one of the few targeted therapies available in the myeloma space. Um, And so what they found, keeping in mind that um, patients in the venetoclax arm had um, a slightly higher uh, medium prior lines of therapy, I believe they had three as opposed to two prior lines in the palm uh, dex arm, Um, And uh, did treat, um, you know, a variety of patients. One thing I did want to point out here, and I think is something that we continue to work on in myeloma space is they had a very low percentage of patients that were um, African in descent or Latin descent. Um, And that's, I think, um, an area where we have to work a little bit harder, especially because we know that translocation 1114 is more prevalent in those populations. So I think we do have to take this data with a large grain of salt there. Right. Um, That being said, while they did see a numerically larger progression free survival um, in patients treated with venetoclax and dexamethasone as opposed to pomalidomide and dexamethasone, it was not statistically significant second um, um, for, for, the, for the physical analysis, analysis of this study. Um, I think it was in regards to kind of how to take that. Um, you know, it's definitely hard to beat pomalidomide and dexamethasone. We've seen that yeah. in other studies. Um, but I think it also shows us that maybe venetoclax is not a medication we can use as a doublet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, it. you know, we did see higher response rates in patients treated with venetoclax dex as opposed to pomalidomide dex, that was statistically significant, almost double of what it was with pomalidomide and dex. Um, So there is a role for treatment um, with a BCL2 inhibitor, but it may not be strong enough alone.
0: But so very well stated. And that's true. And uh, yeah, the belief study had uh, bortezomib, the, you know, uh, Dr. Coffin presented with carfilzomib, you know, so it, it, if you do use right now, if you uh, it's off label, obviously, but if you've been clax in any scenario for T1114 myeloma, what how do you typically do it in your personal practice?
1: In my personal practice, it's often in times in combination with a proteasome inhibitor, sure. um, either Velcade or carfilzomib, depending on tolerability and the patient's comorbidities.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Shanali. Thank you, Dr. Midha. This was interesting. You know, it was a, a very whirlwind meeting in Greece for all of us. And I think uh, hopefully, you know, I always say that hopefully a year from now, everything we talked about will be out of date uh, with more data, not the real world eclistoma, but everything else will kind of change <laughs> to be more and more data about how these things unfold. Um,
1: exactly.
0: So with that, thank you again for your time. And uh, this has been another episode of Oncology Data Advisor. Thank you to everyone for listening.
1: Thanks for having me.